Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley, and I'm just hopping in really quickly before we get to the interview with Georgia Popoff to remind everybody that we are currently running a special project and it is ongoing. It is the open mic of the air. So if you've been missing open mics where you live because of the worldwide pandemic, this is a chance to share your work. Or if you just like going to open mics and you're not ready to put your own stuff out there, it's a chance for you to hear voices from around the world. So if you want to take part in it, as a listener, you can just download the episodes from our podcast feed. But if you want to submit, you can send a recording, five minutes or less, of yourself reading your poem to openmicoftheair at gmail.com. You can find the full submission guidelines on our website at poetryspokenhere.com. Now, here's our interview with Georgia Popoff. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Georgia Popoff. She's a community poet, editor, and artist educator, workshop coordinator at the YMCA Downtown Writers Center in Syracuse, New York. She's authored several books, the latest being Psychometry, recently released by Tiger Bark Press. And she's going to tell us about Psychometry and read some poems, too. So, uh, Georgia, I haven't haven't been with you in about 20 or 30 years in the flesh, but it's great (laughs) to be talking to you today. (laughs) Hi, Charlie. This means I have to come to Vermont soon. This is great once we get past this crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was in the uh, kitchen thinking making my coffee before I was ready to talk to you and thought it's been since I think 1995 when I came out to when you were in Albany and did the television taping with you with poems that weren't even a, my first book yet but they were going to be. And now I have four collections of poetry and uh a textbook for, well, not a textbook, but a guidebook for teaching poetry in K-12 education called Our Difficult Sunlight. And I co-edited an anthology of essays to commemorate Gwendolyn Brooks and the 100th anniversary year of her birth. And uh, both of those projects were with the poet um, and educator, Karesh Ali Lansana. So I've been busy, and now I'm working on a memoir. I've got a chapbook project going. Yeah, you know, I've just got these silos <laughs> of material in my computer in different files. So Super. I can yeah. harvest and throw it in there and figure out what it's going to be. That's right. Yeah. But this was a this was an incredible project. I'm I'm really I learned a great deal from the book, and I'm very proud of of it. It's exciting. Now that is interesting. What what uh, tell us what you mean by that or Give an example of something that you learned. Well, the first thing is that when I I moved towards uh, from autobiographical inspiration for my poetry to to working in persona, which I did almost exclusively for eight years because I was current on my story. I didn't want to repeat the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there was no sense in writing poems about the same thing, and I wanted a more deliberate process to grow as an artist. I needed something that would make me a better poet than just, oh, I'm thinking about that today and I'm going to write a poem. Because I did that for a really long time. Yeah. And so um, my third, and that, was, that was after I finished my second book, The Doom Weaver, which was with um, 
Main Street Rag Publications. And I really want to give a shout out to, to Main Street because Scott Douglas is, is really doing something remarkable in small press with diversity and getting a lot of first and second books out into the world and his journal, you know, he's, he's another one of those missionaries in the face of poetry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, I was, you know, it was like, Oh God, okay. You know, I'm, I'm done with my story. I'm current with my story. Wow. for me. And <laughs> so I started working in semi persona with Salter, the agnostics book of common curiosities, which was my first book with tiger bark press. Um, that came out in 2015, and that was all based on a character named Joy the Agnostic. And she's kind of me on steroids. It was, how can I look at the questions I have from the universe and then, you know, like take them to a deeper level? And by getting out of my personal narrative yeah. and put it, couching it in a character, I drew strength in what I could write. So then I started writing um, persona poetry in the voices of inanimate objects in the daily lives of iconic women. And uh, the first being one called Harriet Tubman's Dress Form. And that started me on that project. Like I had a list of women who I felt were either overlooked, under, misunderstood, or not looked deeply enough. Like with Harriet Tubman, her clothes were always right up to her neck. You know, she was always, mm -hmm. she, she always looked so stern, but there was a woman there. Who was in who who was married twice and deeply in love? She was a spy. You know, I just went on and on with all the reasons why I would want to know about her, and then what was the object that could could represent her and speak on behalf of her? So I had to do research. That was a change. There there was research um, for each of the characters that I chose. And some of the characters never got written because I, I listen constantly to NPR and I would hear a story and um, on one of the shows, I listen to Morning Edition every day, I listen to uh, Radio Lab, you know, and I would, yeah. something would captivate me, fresh air. And that, that character would, would take me away from it, you know. So one of those poems is uh, about Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary. I heard about her story on one of the episodes of Radio One. I think it's called, it was called Patient One. And I never, I, you know, I'd heard about Typhoid Mary all my life, but I never understood her true story. And the oppression, because she was an asymptomatic carrier of the disease in the time of crisis, you know, in the time of epidemic. Wow. And she didn't believe that she was, she was sick. She thought they were just incarcerating her because she was an Irish woman. And at wow. the time when the, you know, the Irish immigrants were so, if they weren't working, they, they still, you know, were, were yeah. not considered anything but second class citizens at best. Right. So she was incarcerated on um, North Brother Island off, you know, in the water, middle of the water near Manhattan for the last, I think, 30 years of her life, if that's correct, wow. with no trial. It was, uh, the island had been a um, quarantine site for people with tuberculosis. Mm. And then after World War II, it was a site for GIs who uh, came back with their families who were going to school. And it was too hard to get back and forth to the island. So they relocated the, the GIs and their families to living quarters, you know, in the boroughs. Wow. And turned it into a, a, a drug rehabilitation 
center for 20 years and then um, a lot of there was a lot of uh, subterfuge there and it was closed down and now you cannot go to North Brother Island without permission from the um, New York City Parks and it's almost impossible to get. The other thing that happened was that uh, in a the early part of the 20th century, very early part, a boatload of German immigrants who were going from Manhattan to, I think, Staten Island for a, a picnic collided on the rocks. It's very treacherous getting to oh getting to North Brother Island. And everyone died because there were no functional, or almost everyone died, 300 people. Wow. So there are all these ghosts that walk the island, too, because there were no um, lifeboats or uh, life preservers yeah. that were functional. Yeah. So there was all this stuff that came together, well, and really then did... I had to write a poem about her. Yeah. It's interesting that you you, you gave yourself an assignment. I, I find this kind of thing interesting as a source of poetry, and then, then you did explicit research, all this left-brain activity to produce a right-brain, you know, poem, or both sides of the brain poem, if you can go for that. I think it's great. Let's hear Yeah, it was great. Let's, let's I hear learned about a lot. Her. Let's <laughs> hear about Typhoid Mary, okay. poetically speaking. So, <laughs> so there's first a quote from, from um, Mary Mallon herself. I have never had typhoid in my life. Why should I be punished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? Mary Mallon's lab coat. The children sickened first, then the maids and mothers. Simple amenities afforded her by the rich were forfeited. The morning the authorities found her the second time, she balked, raising her carving fork like a saber. They confiscated her knives. They dragged her off to an ambulance, then to that godforsaken island, its barren little cottage, with a cold stove and one severe tree. She was feisty at best, a scrapper for certain. Some declared her a bold liar, but I knew her to be a cunning survivor. As a girl, she schemed to make her talent serve her well. Instead, her body betrayed her, as did the health department and the press. Terminally exiled, at first Mary filled spare time with modest tasks assisting the nurses. One day she finally relented. She forsook kitchen memory for test tubes and stool samples. As if it too was infected, Mary rolled the apron that had shielded her from sputter and spite into a ball, pressed it to the back of the bureau drawer behind rows of cotton socks and her Bible. She found peace in the laboratory preparing slides as close to cooking as she could get. Tiny thunders of typewriter keys bade her futile appeals. I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. Perhaps her resilience, rather than mere disease, proved the truer threat, or her brogue, or that stubborn streak. Like milk gone sour, bitterness coursed through her curdled heart, conferring her a pariah, husbandless and empty. Late at night, she paced the North, North Brother shoreline with the other gray ghosts, glaring across the East River, waiting for judgment. 
She'd no sooner walk the moon than the Bronx streets on the other side, nothing left but surrender and the howl of her skinny dog. Well, it is, it is just so interesting to uh, empathize with Typhoid Mary, which is, yeah. some, which is something yeah. I found in these in these poems that you're doing, um, in the persona at least, in the couple that you sent me. It seems like that's a really strong component of it, a high level of empathy. That's, yeah. Thank you for recognizing that. This whole project is very much a feminist stance. Um the, the first section is all the inanimate object, object poems from women who I, are, you know, are pretty much iconic for one reason or another. And that's called uh, Psychometry, as the book is. And then the second section are all letter poems, uh, contrived letter poems uh, called Epistle, that, that section. Mm-hmm. The third section was fun to do because that's all persona poems from poets who don't really exist anyplace but in my imagination. And I got to play a lot with form because they are just individual poems that any given woman poet might have written one day about whatever. And they're all signed anonymous to acknowledge all the women from the many generations who were not either able to publish at all because they were women or unable to publish under their own names or, you know, very often when you see a poem signed anonymous, it's a woman's poem. And then after working on this project for about seven years, I just got a clear message that it was time for me to, the, the book would have to end. It was already formulated as a book with, with three sections at that point. And I just said, okay, it's time to go back to take your, your lessons and go back to writing in your own voice. So the fourth section of the book is called I Am, and it's a sort of a 25-poem self-portrait. Mm-hmm. I think it's 25, 23 maybe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I do want to give a shout out to P- Tiger Bark Press too. Uh, Steve Huff was the former publisher at Boa Edition Limited and uh, Phil Memmer is the associate editor and also designs the books. He made my two books beautiful. But the fact that Steve chose me as one of his poets to publish is a tremendous honor given all the amazing people he's published in his career. So I'm very honored with the people who have chosen me for their presses and grateful. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, those presses are so important, you know, mm-hmm. even, even if, if they're not as well known as, you know, city lights or whatever. Well, let, let's move on to the, uh, to the letter, uh, letter section and hear a poem from there. Okay. Uh, This was written when I went to the Massachusetts Poetry Festival for the first time in 2013, which was just um, about three weeks after the Boston Marathon bombing. This is called Missive to a Priest. Boston, Massachusetts, spring 2013. Forgive me, Father, for I have dreamed of pulling stockings over my toes. The rasp of nylon burns my shins. Other nights, tigers with ferocious appetites sever sever my legs beneath the knees, fangs like razors keen from the strop. Before the race, as you know, I trained for more than a year to the sacrifice of many things. I was prepared 
I persevered, but nothing readied, readied me for this. I composed dirges for my stumps, agonies with no lyric, just the low drone of reconciliation. I will learn to walk again, like a baby. However, about forgiveness, Father, it is you who must give me reason. I cannot manage this on my own. That's another high empathy poem, and it's an, another issue that you know people don't very often think about after these mass shootings or these other kinds of atrocities, that the people are going to live with the consequences. The people who aren't killed, who have to live with the consequences right. for the entire rest of right. their lives. It's really... Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your compliment and your understanding what it takes. You cannot write persona poetry without really deeping, deeply going into empathy. You have to get out of your own head. Anything that we would write about in persona, we, we would have a connection to somehow, intellectually, artistically. Uh-huh. But you, you, have to, you have to put your own ego aside for a bit to um, feel what the character you're writing about would feel. You know, it's, it's a form of, it's like literary acting. Yeah. And, you know, finding the character and giving them voice, you know. And, and these are things that are, it's really funny. There's a lot of criticism right now about persona poetry, particularly in, in the conversation about cultural appropriation. You have to be really careful mm. about that. Um, don't write about anything that you don't have a really significant knowledge about just because it interests you. You have to be really connected to, to, pu- to bring it yeah. forth well. But... Um, the same bar, you know, the same measurement is not as stringent with fiction writers or uh, dramatic writers as it is with poets. Like, we're supposed to, everybody thinks the I is us, you know? Right. The first person pronoun is, is our own voice. And most of the time, it may be with, at least since the 20th century, but... Um, it's not always, you know, so I always speak of the speaker of the poem, not the poet, you know, so it's so yeah. we have to be careful with that with persona, but you you, can, you have to empathize. You have to take a great deal of compassion and see that person deeply before you write in their voice. Yeah, and it seems it's exactly like acting. You adopt the persona and you speak as the character. I mean, a play, yeah. that's what you do. You speak as the character, not as yourself. So in the right. poem, you're speaking as the character would speak, seems to me. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's do a un, un, non-existing poet's poem because she was forgotten by history, if you know what I mean. <laughs> that was probably not right. a very good way to say it, but I'm saying part three. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in part three, that's called voice. That section is called voice. Yeah, because I feel I'm giving voice to all these these people who don't even exist. That's pretty funny. Um, I sent you some samples. Which of the two of those did you want to hear? Well, when I think about, I'm just thinking about our listeners. Um, I think liberation. It's all right. More, uh, well, out there. Yeah, with this, the message. This is one, another one. This is another one from the. There's probably eight or ten poems in the book from my um, listening to NPR and going, ooh, <laughs> that's a poem. So I was listening to uh, 
Terry Gross interview the author of a book called The Savage Continent, which is about the history of World War II direct or Europe directly after World War II. And, you know, being in the era that grew up with Hogan's heroes and, you know, veterans from World War II yeah. who didn't talk about it, you know, I didn't really understand the devastation of Europe. And one of the things that uh, was discussed was the impact of the war and post-war on women. Like a million women were raped in, in the liberation of the death camps and post, uh, you know, post-World War yeah. II, like in the immediate year or two. And it just was horrifying. So he, uh, I, I apologize for not remembering the gentleman's name, uh, the author, but he was saying that he interviewed a woman who had been raped by her liberator uh, when the one of the camps was was opened up and the people were supposedly yeah. saved, and that just yeah. And she, I remember her saying, you know, I had nothing. Why I I couldn't understand why he would even find find that something to do because she was just skin and bones. So in honor of that woman and all the women who suffered and all the women over the generations, this, this is the poem that came it's called Liberation. My name has been pestilence, slave, death. Now trophy, currency, spoils of war. Once I was known as wife, dreamer, daughter of Zion. Mirrors waited willingly for my face. I have outlasted countless, not by virtue of my own cunning, but by the hand of God. Slack skin, a wrinkled cloth draping bones, I am ravaged. What kind of beast would press himself against my frame? to steal the only precious space I could salvage. How was this man so desperate for reverence that he was blind? Was this the son of those who drove my family from their shtetl west toward the ocean and later a plague few would survive? I am not the only one, both fueled and stunted by hatred, dry as furnace ash. Anonymous. I I must say that is a truly depressing poem. I swear it reminds me of a couple of uh, Margaret Atwood's poems that I know of, where she talks about uh, atrocities, and it's just wow. But we have to know about these things and think about these things once in a while to hope just not have them happen again. Right, and you know, women are are often the spoils of war. Um, and we cannot let the, the, the Holocaust ever become be forgotten. No, no, no. no. The passage of time is just dreadful for that. So many yeah. things get forgotten. Yeah. It's just really, uh, yeah. Well, let's move on to your personal, uh, yeah. your, your personal poems, going back to writing about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really funny. I was terrified. I was terrified. I didn't know how to do it anymore. And I... <laughs> Do you know Adrian Matika? Uh, no. He, uh, he wrote The Big Smoke, uh, the the hmm. 
beautiful book about um, Joe Johnson, the, 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 that's his name, right? Yeah. Joe Johnson, the, the, the boxer. early 20th century boxer. Yeah. And he and I were t- talking about about the same time that we were trying to write in our own voices after being persona poets for, for a long time. We were both admitting to each other that, oh, my gosh, I, this is like the scariest thing as a writer I've ever done is try to write again from my own perspective. And he then successfully went on to, to uh, put out a beautiful autobiographical book called um, Map of the Stars. And... Um, and he's the poet laureate of Indiana, Indiana right now. I think. Huh. Yeah, he's a great poet. Adrian right. Matika. Everybody should find him. Got that. Um, yeah. Okay. So well, how I about, have how about these your, are a couple. Yeah, yeah. Well, you like your baptism there? Uh, you want baptism? That's one I've got in front of me too. That's great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think okay. uh, I think probably people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah, it also lightens the mood just a little bit. Yeah, that's a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. After war and deprivation and oh, everything, yeah. yeah. you know, we'll, we'll just go to me being on the pity pot a little bit. Um, baptism. Swimming has always terrified me. I know how to float. I can tread water. It makes no difference. Panic surges through me. My parents split when I was an infant. That is all I know. At some point early on, my father would periodically retrieve me. By the time I was in school, visits became my job. One summer, I was four. We went to Jones Beach. There were countless children. The sand was speckled with umbrellas, baskets, and plaid igloo coolers. Mothers on blankets scanned the blue horizon. One of my father's friends hoisted me onto his shoulders and walked straight into the curling water wall. I did not even know the man. I held on like a rodeo rider. After that, I stayed close to the edge of the water. Someone's transistor radio sang tinny tunes. Then a wave barreled past its bounds. It sucked me under. People looked blurry like in funhouse mirrors. I blacked out. I woke in a teeny bathhouse tub. The nauseous green porcelain matched the tiles. A kindly nurse stroked my head. My father hovered. I came back from the depths. Yeah. Some adults just don't have good sense. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) This is true. Good luck. Especially in the 50s. You know, we weren't weren't, um, padded and elbow pads and knee pads and helmets and, you know, (laughs) three foot slides when we were kids you know we right. really knew how to be kids that's right they parents didn't you... pay any attention to us we got right. stitches you go out there and you break know, your head moving. on the playground right <laughs> we learned risk too and how to calculate them there you, you know? go that's true yep a little yeah. bit of uh dealing with life mm-hmm. yeah well georgia this has been great i'm so glad we could do this I'm going to do our official sign-off, and then you and I can continue talking. You know. Yeah, uh, and can I just put a couple plugs in for do it. a plug-in for my um for my newly designed website, georgiapopoff.com, P-O-P-O-F-F. There you go. And folks. also to look at you know support independent bookstores and indie press. Don't buy from Amazon if you can avoid it. You know, buy from your local bookstores, buy from the presses. 
buy from the poets who go out in the world. You know, we we make some of our extra money to tour by selling our books ourselves. So, like, go there first, and then if you can't find it, okay, look at the chains, and then go to the the, the big guy who's really rich. There but you go. Let that be your last stop, not your there first. You and go, Charlie, folks. thanks yes. for all the years that you've been on the mission of poetry. I admire well, you. Yeah, and thanks to you too. Okay, folks, you have just heard the good word from George Popoff out there in Syracuse, New York. So you might want to heed her advice when you go out to acquire books. So you're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, hoping you will join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.